Time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. Let's talk breaking news here about Mike DeYoung. The lo- he's the longest-serving MLA in the legislature, right? In fact, I think he may be the third longest-serving member ever. Wow. So Tom Uphill uh, from the Independent sort of Labor Party served from 1920 to 1950. Wow. Um, longer than that. He served 40 years. So 1960. 40 years? 20 to 1960. Um, as a, a member of a one member par- party, yeah. quite extraordinary. Yeah. Um, uh, then WAC Bennett, I think, served almost 32 years. Yeah. So Mike DeYoung was elected February 17th, 1994. So almost 30 years to the day he was elected. Uh, 11 o'clock today, as there's been reports that he's pulling the plug, um, that he's not, well, he's not going to run again. He's not resigning or anything. Uh, there had been speculation he was going to run, you know, I've talked about it, is he going to run federally? Well, that's the thing. Would he yeah. jump to the federal conservatives? And it sounds like uh, there have been reports already that he's just simply going to say, I'm not running again. Okay. Um, just retiring. He got married recent, well, a couple years ago, a woman uh, from France who has a place in France, and I think if you weigh France versus Ottawa, <laughs> I think it's a no-brainer where you're going to go. So Diong is also, you know, I've known Mike for forever, yeah. uh, as as you have, yeah. um, quite a uh, former finance minister, former yeah. attorney general, but also played a, a pivotal role in BC political history. By winning the by-election in Matsqui, the riding of Matsqui, which is out, was the old Abbotsford riding, or the the, the, the old riding that encompasses Abbotsford, <clears throat> he won it in February 17, 1994, and he beat a political icon named Grace McCarthy. Yes. yes. By something like 40 votes. Very close. I was there that night. I covered that. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of us think that if Grace had won... <clears throat> Grace was sort of the, the the last holdover of the Bennett dynasty. She was the leader of the Social Credit Party yeah. at that time. And if she had won the 91 Social Credit leadership race, I think she may have allowed that party to strike. And, in fact, if she had won that that by-election yeah. in 1994, that may have stopped the, the growth of the B.C. Liberal Party, which was yeah. sort of this rump party that came out of nowhere. And revived this old the fortunes of the old Socred party, because yeah. she had wrested control of the Socreds away from the social conservatives that took over under Bill Vanderzam, and brought it back to sort of the old Bennett um, dynasty type party. Yeah. And if she had won, I think a case could be made that they would have emerged as the alternative party to the NDP instead of the BC Liberals. And because Mike DeYoung won. I think he ensured that the BC Liberals would become the dynasty. Final nail in the coffin of social credit. Yeah, so historic win. You were there that night. It's, yeah. it's probably one of the most pivotal by-elections in BC history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really was. So is this bad news for Falcon, though? Like he loses oh, yeah. another MLA? Another. This is like eight or nine. Yeah. You know, his caucus is just departing. Corinne Kirkpatrick is now she's not running again as another uh, major MLA there. Yeah, so, yeah, I mean, Dan Ashton, Ben yeah. Stewart. Mike Morris, Jordan Sturdy, Greg Kylo, Ellis Ross, Ellis Ross, Ellis yeah. Ross, another big loss. And now yeah. DeYoung, yeah. I mean, now Mike is sort of checked out. It seems to me he's kind of checked out since the 2017 election, where you know it's and again, it, it's psychologically it's got to be tough to go from being finance minister and attorney general to being an opposition critic. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just two completely different worlds. One, you've got your hands on all the levers and press all the buttons and make all the decisions in government yeah. and actually have an impact on, on people's lives. In opposition, 
you got nothing. Yeah, it's just you know, and probably know, and looking at another term in opposition too, look, judging and, by the polls. And that's another reason why I think you're seeing a lot of these uh, people leaving because yeah. the prospect of forming government seems very, very, very bleak and very dim. And so another four years in opposition after you've been a cabinet minister, yeah. you know, it's uh, which is why I'm a little surprised Shirley Bond's running again. She's been around since 2001. Mm. Um, and she was, a, again, Shirley had more portfolios I think, than anybody. She was she was attorney general, finance, health care, education, yeah. I think transportation. I think Shirley might hold the record for most portfolios. And then to look at another four years in opposition, it's... it's well, Prince George is going to be interesting, too, especially if they put a strong B.C. Conservative Party candidate in there against her. You know, Rustad yeah. seems to have the momentum right now, and yeah. Prince George, you know, or the NDP wins on a split because of yes. vote, vote split. So yeah. I... I wouldn't bet against Shirley Bond, quite frankly. Yeah. I think she's got a personal appeal there. But Mike Morris was the MLA for one of the other Prince George seats. He's leaving, so they lose the incumbency advantage. Right. And that's a so all these MLAs who are leaving BC United, they lose the incumbency advantage, and that gives a doorway uh, to the BC Conservative Party or the NDP to win on a vote split. Okay, speaking of Kevin Falcon, he was my first guest on the show this morning. We talked about the announcement yesterday by BC Premier David Eby on this affordable housing, rental housing plan for the middle class. So this is targeted at yeah. middle incomers, $190,000 a year you could qualify for this housing. And I asked Kevin Falcon about it. Here's what he said. Of, of course I would cancel it. Because it makes about as much sense as their old housing flub plan made sense. Yes, we need to have more market affordable housing. There's no question about that. The government's not going to be able to build it. You provide the right incentives and you get the private sector and the not-for-profit sector building that housing and you build it at scale. Okay, he, he would cancel it, he told me this morning. Yeah, that's interesting. I was surprised by that. I mean, Why? Again, I think people are looking for governments to do something on housing mm. and not just to sit idly by because that's what happened for a decade or as the housing crisis worsened. So the private sector wasn't building the housing, and partly because municipalities weren't also in the game either. They put up roadblocks to a lot of developers. Yeah. Um, so I think people are looking for something to happen on the housing file, which surprised, I'm surprised that Falcon would take such a hard line just to dump a $2 billion investment uh, to build housing. I suspect the NDP are quite pleased I that he they, would say that he would cancel it. I think they're quite happy to yeah. hear Falcon say he would cancel it. Yeah. And it, it. Because, again, there's not a good track record in the private sector of building things. Again, not entirely the fault of developers. There's a lot of municipal roadblocks that sure. have slowly been eroded. Taxes, by the, permitting, delays, the, red tape. Endless hearing process. Yeah. All that has been sort of starting to be addressed by the government with these, this housing legislation that's brought in November to reach over the the heads of municipalities and, you know, get rid of the hearing process, uh, to require them to build housing. So now the government's stepping in. This is rental housing. You're right. What's unique about this? This is not low-income housing. No. This is... <laughs> This is middle income, that middle income, quite high middle income. 190000 yeah. bucks a year. Yeah, no, and, and EB addressed this yesterday uh, in his announcement, saying he has people coming to him saying, and you've had callers on this show yeah. who say, I make $100,000 a year and I can't find housing, yeah. and I can't afford rent. You know, after my after after tax income, it's not a hundred thousand anymore. It's you know sixty thousand or seventy thousand. What if you're paying three thousand dollars a month in rent? Yeah. Um, you're barely hanging on. So this this is now one thing. This is going to take a number of years to accomplish. One of the, the goals yesterday was to take the development timeline from three to five years to twelve to eighteen months. 
Now, it sounds ambitious. One of the flaws in this, and, um, and it came up yesterday, and we've talked about this before, there literally are not enough construction workers to build this, this amount of housing. We just don't have enough skilled workforce to build what, what's needed because we've got skilled workers building the Broadway subway, building the Potello Bridge, building the Sight Sea Dam, building the SkyTrain out to Langley. Um, who's going to build the housing? There's only so many skilled workers out there. Really sets up an interesting issue for the fall election, I think, for sure, on housing and who should build it. Should it be government or private sector? Let's uh, finish real quickly, Keith, here on the another wild night at Richmond City Crazy. Council last night. So they vote in favor of a supervised drug consumption site here, or at least they want this site at the Richmond Hospital. David Eby, now here's Premier David Eby yesterday saying, well, wait a second here now. He said he's talked to the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority, and he says they told him, well, they don't even need this in Richmond. Let's listen. They're trying to get a better handle on uh, why Richmond is bringing forward this proposal at this time, whether what's proposed actually meets the needs in Richmond, because uh, from their perspective, this is not uh, what is immediately needed in that city. Okay, so he says that maybe they don't even need it. Not immediately needed, which tells me it's mm. not going to happen before the election. It's just not going to happen. When you have the premier throwing shade like this, that means it's it's just not not in the cards. Uh, we had stats last night about, I think, roughly twenty five. Average number of overdose deaths a year in Richmond is about twenty five, or so, which is tragic. But. Um, I just don't. Once Eb said that, I thought, "Ooh, that's." I don't think so Eb. I don't think Eb wants to deal with this in an election year. Not when the you know the NDP scored historic breakthroughs in Richmond in the 2020 election. Yeah. They don't want to lose those seats. It's a it's a fairly conservative and socially conservative area of the province, right? Which has a lot of problems with with issues such as open drug use. Um, so again, I, <clears throat> this is not going to go forward. No, I think EB just wanted to put that fire out there yesterday, and so I don't think they wants to deal with this. No. Here's the thing I'm wondering though: Why would Richmond City Council kick this hornet's nest in the first place? I like, why would they wade into this? Anyway, I don't know. You had councillors saying this is what the Coastal Health Authority wants, but then when you have the premier saying no, that's not what the Coastal Health Authority wants. Yeah. Like who? You're right. Why kick this hornet's nest? Yeah. Why create this thing if the health authority? It's not even their jurisdiction. No. I mean, it's not like Richmond City Council is going to set this no. thing up. No, it's, a it's health the health authority. authority. And if the health authority is saying no, then this is sort of yeah. what's the point? But now we've had like two a, days of turmoil there. Crazy over meetings thing. and protesters. The footage we had on Global last couple nights. It just oh, people screaming. It was wild and some racism in yep. the crowd too. It was ugly. It was they got ugly, ugly there. Last couple of nights. Baldry's Beat. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Daniel in Sydney. Hi, Daniel. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. I, I just want to say that I support the Premier's initiatives here on this housing thing. We're in a crisis, and it requires the government to get involved. Um, you know, the, the opposition leaders, same old, same old attitude. This is where it got us into this problem in the first place. The market can't do it. It's proven it. And that's the, the gaping hole in, in Falcon's argument is that, oh, yeah, we'll just let the market take The market's what got us into this problem in the first place. So, And as far yeah. as the $190,000 limit, you know, that's not what it used to be. That's just combined household income. And yeah. I can tell you right now, our combined household income, like we own our house out right now. We paid for it years ago. But we couldn't afford to buy a house now. Not, no, and no. I make like a, well, almost 150000 combined a year. We couldn't do it. So yeah, I think yeah no, I, I've got friends in Metro whose family income is almost 200000 and they're barely hanging on with their mortgage payments. Because a lot of people, you know, I'm, you and I are lucky. We bought early in Victoria. But yes. some of these people, you know, carrying 
half million dollar mortgages, seven hundred thousand yeah. dollar mortgages. I mean, that's taking your entire income, even if you're at a high income, a relatively high income level. Well, especially with interest rates going up too. I mean, people yeah, are so, just I, up. It's interesting. Falcon again plays the developer card that he's a developer. And therefore, developers. Yeah, he be told trusted. he told me like he before he got back into politics, he was in the private sector in in the development sec in business, and he told me when I was building homes, I was building townhouses that were like three hundred thousand bucks. I'm not sure okay? the developer card's the most sympathetic card to play. Well, well again, I think it's maybe EB uh, likes it when oh, he I'm reminds sure the he list. loves it every time Falcon reminds everyone that he's a developer. Yeah, there's not a lot of love for developers and politically. Yeah. It's not. It's not the. You know, it's almost as bad a profession as journalism when it comes to, <laughs> to a lot of people. Yeah. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 in your cell. Camilla in Maple Ridge. Hi. Hi. Um, yeah, I actually agree with Kevin Falcon on this one. Uh, I actually am a part owner of a small builder developer company in Maple Ridge, so I'm one of the, the hated ones, as you speak about. Um, and I think that what we need to understand is that the amount of taxation that goes into single-family and multifamily developments is obscene. Mm -hmm. And the time frame that it takes to get things through development phases is also obscene. And yep. the amount of money that developers and builders have to put out in order to get something built and the time it takes costs hundreds of thousands of dollars on a single-family home. Our provincial yep. sales taxes on our materials that go into a home are in excess of $50,000 per dwelling unit. If the city and the, and the province were really serious about reducing costs for single-family or multi-family homes, they would deal with the costs associated with building and developing when it comes to the taxation level. Yeah, there's been Thank you. lots of studies that show just how much of a, a hit taxation and development fees play in the price of a home. Well, it does. It does create an interesting choice for government too. Like, if you go with the the caller's point of view and say, "Well, why don't you cut our taxes and then we can build cheaper homes for you?" Maybe the government could do that because right now, EB's talking about spending two billion dollars here to build these four thousand rental homes. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could do a a two billion dollar tax break, right, on the private sector. And again, this gets into the lots of moving parts. Municipalities are the ones who are levying a lot of these development fees, not the government, not the provincial yeah. government. The provincial government is more taxation, but these development fees, which pay for infrastructure, which pay for sewers, pay for hydro lines and hookups like that, yeah. that money's got to come from somewhere. So right now it's coming from the developer and the cost of the, the, the housing that's actually being built. But if that, you can turn this around and say, well, if those fees and charges are prohibiting the, the construction of housing, can the provincial government do an end run around that? and build housing itself. Yeah. Michelle in Vancouver. Hi, Michelle. you got 30 seconds here. Yeah, it just feels like a little bit of a, a wealth tax in disguise, um, basically uh, tapping into the existing um, market to repurpose that money into building missing middle housing. Um, I do feel it should be more tackled in a free market approach. How is it a wealth tax? How do you figure that uh, Well, you're basically taking the money from the people that are currently paying taxes and repurposing yeah. it to subsidized housing for um, the missing middle. Okay, thank you for the call. 30 seconds. Yeah, that's an interesting take. Um, I still think the public's looking for some action 
And, you know, this flurry of bills we saw in the fall is not going to have any short-term impact. But I think the public, if they see something being, trying to be done, it's probably going to be more positive than negative. Keith, thanks a lot. Dr. All right, that was Keith Baldry. Thanks for all your calls.